family member um, for, for joining us this morning. And thank you regulars for being willing to be displaced out to the cheap seats at the edges. Um, you're very kind to put up with my rather oversized family. It's very kind of you. And um, this is what I look like in a suit. I'm aware most of you will never have seen me um, like this before. So uh, now you know, now you know. You will uh, find very helpful to have Titus in front of you. That's page 1199. Um, my job over the next uh, few moments is to try and explain this passage, which was just uh, read to us. And uh, your job is to try to see if, if what I'm saying matches what is uh, in this, in this uh, passage that was just read. So please do keep that open. And uh, why don't we pray? Let's ask God to uh, help us, and particularly help me, because I think my, my throat's about to fall apart, and I, I don't sort of end in some sort of coughing, spluttering mess. So let's, uh, let's just uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your kindness to us, and we praise you for this passage. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly and faithfully, and I pray that you'd uh, change all of our minds, change all of our thinking about what it means to live for you and be one of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I should say, it's not very often I listen to Women's Hour on Radio 4, but uh, just the other day, I was, I was sort of, uh, it was on in the background in the car, and uh, some, someone was on, and it, it sort of caught, my, caught my, my hearing. There was a lady called Dorothy Rose, an eminent psychologist, and she was on the show explaining how religion affects society. She was arguing that religious people, they, they construct a fantasy about how they are superior to everyone else around them, particularly those who don't share their views. She said they point the finger at others and they say, you're the problem, not me. She concluded by saying religion is therefore by nature exclusive. It breaks us down into tribes and it divides society. And I don't know what you make of that, um, but perhaps for many of us, that has actually been our experience of Christianity. Maybe you're here this morning and you're looking in on, on spiritual things, that it interests you, but maybe you've met Christians who fall into those sorts of categories, arrogant, bigoted, self-righteous, divisive. Maybe you've come across people like that and, and to be honest, you're wondering why on earth would Hannah and I want to raise Chloe in this faith? Well, my aim for the next 15 minutes or so is, is to try and demonstrate that the Christianity many of us would have experienced, the Christianity many of us would have rightly rejected, is not the Christianity of the Bible. In front of you is this short letter written by the Apostle Paul to a man called Titus. And it it might surprise you that Paul's expectations for Christians are the complete opposite of Dorothy Rowe's experience of them. Just look down with me in your Bibles to verse 1, if you'd be so kind. It says this, Remind the people, that's Christians, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. There's lots of things here, but, but, but notice that instead of Christians being arrogant and proud and holier than thou and pointy, pointy fingers at others, notice Paul says they are to show 
True humility, perfect humility towards all people. The big question is this. What stops Christians falling into those patterns which Dorothy Rowe experiences? What will stop Christians from thinking they're better than everyone else? And Paul goes on to give us a number of reasons. I've, I've put them in there on your, on your sort of mint green handout if you're, if you're following along. That might be helpful to you. And the first point Paul makes is this. Christians too have an unflattering past. We too have an unflattering past. It's quite a common accusation, isn't it? Leveled at celebrities who are very, very wealthy. That they've forgotten their humble origins. But just in case followers of Jesus fall into that same danger, it's as though Paul holds up an unflattering old photograph to remind them of what they were once like. He he includes himself, he himself, the Apostle Paul, is in the frame, and he writes this. Look at verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. In the Bible, the fool is not really a, it's not really a comic character. He's more of a tragic one. The fool is someone who tries to live life as though God doesn't really exist. A bit like a spoiled child at Christmas. You know, loves the gifts, wants the gifts, Um, The fool is happy to take life, family, our homes, our friendships, our relationships, our holidays. We're happy to take all the gifts. But the fool isn't so interested in the giver. In effect, they say, I'm content to live my life, my way, without you. And the irony is that, I guess, this looks like freedom, doesn't it? But the irony is, Paul says, they are deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Hannah and I quite like these human planet documentaries. I think they're narrated by John Hurt. Maybe you've seen them. Sometimes they're on sort of BBC Two at late at night. And uh, there's one episode where, where John Hurt, he, he tells us about how the Eskimos, or I think you're meant to call them Inuits, aren't you? The Inuits of the, of the Arctic Circle, about how they catch Arctic wolves. It's quite gruesome, so I should probably prepare you for this. So if you're sort of, if you're, not, if you're squeamish, just go la 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 for a few moments. But it, it is, it's quite fascinating what they do. They get a razor sharp knife with double edged blade, and then they dip it in seal's blood until it freezes over. And then they do that again, another layer of seal's blood until it freezes to the blade. And then they jam the blade into the ground with, so that it's pointing upwards. And then they just walk away and overnight a wolf is drawn to the smell of the seal's blood and uh, he he goes up to it sniffs it and begins to slowly lick it and it's slightly frustrating for him because the blade is so cold it sort of numbs his tongue but but he's not getting much payout from his efforts so he licks harder and harder and harder and, and soon he's delighted because the blood starts to gush. And in a frenzy of blood, he, he licks harder and harder and harder. And in the next morning, the hunters come along and they find one dead wolf. It's a gruesome story. I did apologize to you at the start. <laughs> but Paul's making a similar point here. Our appetites, they can be fatal. 
we take these good things from God, whether it's our wealth or our jobs or our passions and pleasures, and we take these good things and then we, we worship them as though they are God things. We expect they'll offer us life and satisfaction and freedom and we lick away at them, but the payout is limited and it numbs us to the danger and we're consumed by them. I think Paul's reminding us here in the first half of verse 3 that we all are like this by nature. We all by nature have this messed up relationship with God on this vertical axis. But actually he goes on in the second half of the verse to explain how it affects how we relate to one another as well. Just, just look down. The next bit of verse 3. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now when I first read this, I was like, oh, come on, steady on, Paul. It just sounds a bit, a bit harsh. It doesn't quite seem to describe me. It seems a bit OTT. But the more I think about it, the more I think this, this perfectly describes my natural self. And there was a philosopher called C.S. Lewis. You might have heard of him. He most famously wrote the, the Narnia stories, but he was a philosopher. And he argued that the single biggest drive and motivation in all of human existence, next to our fear of death, is our desire for approval, for, for love, for respect and for status. That's what really drives us along in life. And we're desperate to climb in, in, in estimations, other people's estimations of us. And we want to be the most loved in our friendship group. We want to be the most successful in our office. We want to be the most approved of, even here at church. And it's that sort of insecurity which drives us to try and push others down. That's malice. And it's that insecurity which drives us to to desire to be in the position other people are in. That's envy. And this sort of pushing and pulling, this toing and froing, it inevitably results in hate and hating. And I, I expect we see this in our children's schools. I expect we see this at, our, our, at the gates of the school with the mums. I expect we see this in each of our offices. I expect we see this every day, even in our streets. Paul's saying Christians have no reason to be self-righteous. We are not better than people who do not believe in Jesus. In fact, he says we should show true humility. Because we too have this unflattering past. But Paul goes on to give us another reason why Christians should be remarkably humble. And he says that we've received an undeserved rescue. After verse 3, which is slightly bleak and dark, there's a wonderful gear shift. And he goes on to explain how our triune God, that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have acted to save people like us. So look down with me to verse 4. This is wonderful news. But, but, when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Paul begins by describing the Father who saves. 
I think when many people imagine God the Father, they, they think he's slightly distant and disinterested, a bit like one of those sort of Victorian patriarchs with, a, with no smile on the face and a cane in the hand. Well, the, the truth could be not completely, well, it's completely different from that, isn't it? He's described here as so kind, so loving, so merciful, that he desires to save the very people who've ignored him and rejected him. We who hate are recipients of his love. And notice this salvation, it's it's not given in exchange for all of the good things we might have done. No, it's completely free. It's a gift. And that's that's what separates Christianity from every religion. Max Muller, you wouldn't have heard of him, but he was one of the greatest ancient language experts of the last century. He was a brilliant man. And he once said this to, uh, to, in a lecture before all of his peers. It's a, it's a quote. So I'll say this. He, he said, For 40 years at the University of Oxford, I have carried out my duties as the professor of Sanskrit. I have devoted as much time to the study of the holy books of the East as any other human being in the entire world. And I venture to tell this gathering what I have found to be the basic note, the single chord of all of these holy books, be it the Veda of the Brahmins, the Quran of the Muslims, the Sendavesta of the Parsis. The one basic note, the one single chord that runs through them all is salvation by works. They all teach that salvation must be bought And that your own works and merits must be the purchasing price. But he concluded with this sentence. Our own Bible, our own sacred book from the East, is from start to finish a protest against that doctrine. Max Muller understood what Paul is saying here in verse 5. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Friends, Christianity is not a religion. It's a rescue. So when I was listening to Dorothy Rowe on the radio the other day about the effect of religion on society, you know, the superiority complexes, the finger-pointing, the tribalism, I had to agree with her. I had to. Religion does do those things. But biblical Christianity would never do those things. Imagine for a moment, a thought experiment, imagine for a moment that God did accept us on the basis of what we do. Well, not only would Christians be intolerably self-righteous people, but we'd also be chronically insecure Wondering if we've ever ever done enough to please God. Well, praise God that he has rescued us simply on the basis of his undeserved love and mercy. Which means we can, we can enjoy this complete security of our salvation. We have no reason to boast. We have no reason to point fingers. It is an undeserved rescue. The father says, but But how? Well, Paul goes on to tell us about the spirit who washes. Just look down with me to the second half of verse 5. 
He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. God the Spirit's role here is described a bit like a bath. Now, Chloe, um, I think she's downstairs in the creche, but she's a particular fan of bath time. She's got this little plastic tub, which she likes to sort of splash around in, and it gets her clean, and it gets me wet. She loves it. But I've I've found that 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 cleanness, it doesn't last very long at all. It's slightly frustrating. The very next morning, she just needs another bath, and then after that, she'll need another bath, and then another one. Well, the washing that the Spirit gives, it never needs to be repeated. It's like a one-off event, which, which has continual effects. So the moment someone puts their trust in Jesus, the Spirit comes and he, he washes them of all their guilt, of all their sin, of all their, of all their shame. He makes us clean before the Holy Father. But more than that, he, he continues to renew us, to, to make us more like him. And the baptism we just witnessed earlier is a picture of that washing. It's funny, last time I did a baptism, Jonathan's critique of me was that I somehow managed to baptize the table as well as the baby. And I think, I think Jonathan actually fell into the same trap today, um, which I'm delighted about. But, but baptism, it, it kind of anticipates Chloe's, uh, the Spirit's work in Chloe. So we pray that one day she will come to confirm for herself all these promises made on her behalf. And declare for herself the salvation by the Father, the the washing of the Spirit. But how does the Spirit wash? Well, he goes on, Paul answers us, through the Son who justifies. So look down with me again to the second half of verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that... Having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That phrase justified, it's kind of a legal term. It's the sort of thing you might might hear in in a law court. It kind of means the person who believes in Jesus has been declared innocent of all their crimes. I read the story the other day of a rather eccentric Englishman who wanted to go on holiday in in Europe, but he had slightly more money than sense. And so what he did, he decided to ship his pride and joy over with him. His pride and joy was his car. It was a Rolls-Royce engine, you know, the royalty of the motoring world. So there he was. He was enjoying speeding along on the German autobahns and his Rolls-Royce, enjoying the lack of speed limits. And uh, all of a sudden, disaster struck. His car broke down, his pride and joy. He didn't really know what to do. Rolls-Royce is a complex machine. So he he, he called up um, the the Rolls-Royce company back in England. And remarkably, that very day, Rolls-Royce sent an engineer straight to him to sort out his problems. And then they flew the engineer back again the very same day. The man was amazed at this extraordinary service. And so when he got back after his holiday, he he wrote to the company asking them how, how much he owed them. Surely this uh, one-way ticket on a day, uh, this return ticket for an engineer, must be pretty pricey. And so he, he, got, he sent this letter and he got this reply back. Dear sir, 
There is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. (laughs) You might see their motive in, in, in saying that. Well, for the person who trusts in Jesus, God has no record anywhere that you've done anything wrong. And this is free of charge. Completely free. And this is why Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered our world as the heir and the inheritor of all creation. He lived the most attractive and blameless life. And yet he chose willingly to go to the cross. And there he he bore upon himself that, that punishment that we deserve. It's, though, it's as though that guilty verdict fell on him instead of me. And I received the innocent verdict in return. Paul says we become heirs having the hope of eternal life. We have a very unflattering past. We have an undeserved rescue. And finally and very briefly, Paul closes by saying this is a trustworthy message. Just look down, the final verse, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Now imagine in uh, this room here this morning, we're all going to be at slightly different stages with regards to what we think about Jesus and, and the Christian faith. But whoever you are here this morning, whether we're sort of a diehard atheist all the way through to a committed uh, person who loves the Lord Jesus, whoever you are, Paul says, this message is worthy of our trust. It is excellent and profitable for everyone. So if I may, let me, let me address just perhaps two groups of people in this room. For those um, who have perhaps already put their trust in Jesus, have already, already received that undeserved salvation, my prayer is that having understood the kindness and grace of our triune God, having enjoyed that, that security of knowing that he loves you, not on the basis of what you do, but on what he has done. My prayer is that having understood that, you might show grace to others. That you would devote yourself to doing what is good. And friends, this is where we need to be careful to avoid all those charges leveled at religion. Because sadly, tragically, many people who do call themselves Christians fall into all the traps which Dorothy Rose spoke about earlier. And I think even as our culture, as it swings more and more violently against perhaps the values we would hold, we must keep remembering we are not better than those who do not follow Jesus. We are not superior. We are not wiser. We are not part of some exclusive club. We are merely beggars, showing other beggars where to enjoy a wonderful feast. Friends, we, should, we ought to have great humility with whoever we meet, whoever we speak to. But perhaps you're here this morning and, and you're still sort of thinking through these sorts of Christian things. Um, maybe you're not convinced at all. Maybe you are interested and you have, you have questions. My prayer for you is that you'd understand that what we believe in is not a religion. It is a rescue. And uh, it, is, it is free. It is, it is a gift. 
But like most gifts, you always have to accept them, don't you? This salvation, this cleansing, this innocent verdict. The question for each of us is, will we accept it? It's there, it's for us, it's on the table, it is free. But will we take it for ourselves? There's various things you might want to do to sort of find out a bit more. There's um, these uh, various events coming up uh, over the summer. We have a midsummer dinner, we have a men's breakfast, and we've got this uh, big barbecue later on. I think these flies, they might be handed to you on the way in, or maybe they're on the, on the welcome desk just there at the end. Please do come along and, and find out more about what it means to follow Jesus. And ask your hard questions. Because nothing could be of more value than knowing the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And his salvation of us. Let's bow our heads and and let me pray. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for humbling us for reminding us of our own desperate need for a saviour. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your son. We praise you for the gift of your spirit. And I pray that each of us would be humbled by what we've heard today and that we would go away all the more grateful and all the more secure of your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.